We're in Leviticus chapter 22. Today we're going to be looking at Leviticus 22 verses 1 to 16. Um, and we're going to kind of hop right into this section for the sake of time. Um, it, since chapter 18, we've been looking at this theme of holiness. Holiness just means to be set apart for a specific sanctified purpose. Um, and so we've been looking at this big picture idea of holiness. In Leviticus 22, it's all about the holiness of the offering and the holiness of the offerer. All right, So it has to do with the holiness of the offering and the holiness of the priest who's doing the offering. They have to be holy and perfect. So we're in chapter 22 beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, Aaron is the high priest, and his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. That's a little awkward in the English Standard Version, which is the version that we preach from. Um, if, you were gonna, if you read that, for example, some of you probably have the New Living Translation it might say something like this. It might say, hey, speak to Aaron and his sons and tell them to interact with the holy things with reverence so that they don't profane the sacrifice or something along those lines. And that's the general idea. It says to abstain from the holy things which they dedicate to me so that they do not profane my holy name. In other words, partake of the holy things in an appropriate manner. Verse 3, say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. So immediately you see in that, uh, just those couple verses, you see the word holy is used twice. Um, and it's used multiple times, you know, almost 10 times, I think, in this chapter. And so that is a definite theme. This whole section deals with the fact that the priest needs to maintain ritual purity because he regularly interacts with the holy things of God. So the question is, well, what are the holy things? If that's a theme, what are the holy things? And the holy things, if you go back to the beginning of Leviticus, we realize the holy things refers to the sacrifices from the people presented to the Lord. And so they would take, for example, the whole grain offering and they would bring this to the Lord, to the altar. The priest would go in and he would take a handful. And if you remember, that was the priest's portion. And then the rest was the Lord's portion. See, the priests and their families survived on the food from the sacrifices. So the priests, they, didn't also, they weren't also farmers on the side. That, the Lord was their portion, okay? And so if I'm a priest, where do I get my bread? Well, I go, and my memorial, my portion of the grain offering is I get this handful of the flour, and I use this to make bread for my family. And so the priests are partaking of the food, some of the sacrifices, not all of them, some of the sacrifices that come from those um, whatever you want to call them, those offerings, those donations, whatever it might be. So the idea here is that the priest needs to be clean as he's working in the tabernacle because his, he is regularly going in there out and about. As, so his food is from the sacrifice as his portion. He needs to maintain cleanliness all the time. Ritual cleanliness if you're just joining us for the first week. Now, that might seem like an obvious thing, and you're like, well, we've talked about this so many times. I can't wait for Leviticus to be over. But you have to remember that the priest, this is his job. And so the point is the priest needs to be hyper aware of cleanliness. 
Whereas for you, you need to be aware of, of cleanliness as well, but it really only impacts you when you're going into the tabernacle, right? Because having that uncleanliness prevents you from corporate worship. But the priest, because he's regularly going in and out, he needs to be concerned about it on a regular basis. What this means, if we look at this passage, is that the priest cannot partake of meat from the sacrifices if he's become ritually unclean. So in other words, if he touches a dead mouse or something like that, he can't eat dinner until he goes through the cleansing process because his meal is considered holy unto the Lord. And the consequence is this person shall be cut off from my presence. Um, in other words, he will no longer be able to act as a priest in the nation of Israel. That's how serious this is. So what's the point here? The point here is that this teaches us about the importance of integrity for these priests. Okay? It, integrity defined is the quality of being honest. It's the quality of having a strong moral principle. Um, now put another way, it's being the right person when nobody else is looking. Integrity is about having character, and it's an important part of character development. And so the idea here, guys, is that the priests couldn't just perform as priests and go through the motions when they were on the job. They had to always be aware of their cleanliness because to do so had this looming threat in the background of being cut off from the presence of God. Now, herein, we enter into these strange parts of Leviticus, which we've come into before as well. And that the, the reality is this. Do you think anyone actually upheld that law? No way. Most of these laws, that's what's weird about them. No Moabite shall enter the presence of God. Do you know who a Moabite was? David was a Moabite. His mom was a Moabite, technically, Right? So we see throughout that this law has a bar that is impossible to reach, but it still looms because if someone decides to execute judgment in light of this, I'm sorry, you can no longer enter the tabernacle because you were unclean. Um, they have the legal justification to do that. And it also goes to show us how tempting it is to be a hypocrite. Of course, if you're a priest, it would be really tempting to be on when people see you and then go home and touch all the dead mice you want. You know what I mean? If that's your thing, whatever, pal. Okay? But you understand what I'm trying to say? Thank you. Listen, for us, the, the, the point is that anybody can put on a show for an hour on Sunday Anybody can put on a show for two hours at a midweek discipleship group or a hermeneutics class on Wednesday evening. But it's hard to pretend and perform 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Not only is it hard, it's impossible. Your family knows what you're really like, right? You probably, you have a couple friends who know what you're really like, um, they see you slam doors. They see you scream when you lose your patience. They know your vices. They know your temptations. They know, your, you know whether or not you're a dirty fighter. They know all of that stuff, right? Your family sees that. You can't hide that from your family. 
Now, none of us are perfect, right? None of us are going to claim to be perfect, but character is important. This idea of who you are when nobody else is looking, it's important. And it's especially important in leadership, which is why you see this higher calling with priests and you see the same higher calling with the new covenant version of leadership referred to as elders. So I'm just going to read from Titus chapter 1, which is just a, an abbreviated summary of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. His children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. The point is all of those things have to do with character. They have to do with the way that you act, the way that you are in your home, because that's the real you. And so since this is God's business that we're talking about, we can't be pretenders or performers because the bottom line is you're not going to perform well enough for God, and you're not going to pretend before God because he can see right through that. So we need to be walking towards growing in maturity. Um, fighting to grow, working out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us to bring about our sanctification, to accomplish his purposes. The point is this, we are called to be holy, not just in the old covenant, but in the new covenant, we are made holy and called to be holy for his purposes, set apart. And so the first thing I want to underscore here in this section is that we're called to be people of integrity. With that being said, we all know what we are actually like. And so Moses continues. Now, none of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. And so what we're going to see here in this next section, these next few verses, is we see a process of restoration. So I'm going to get unclean. And so what's the process of restoration? Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen, whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things. That's what I was saying before, how he can't eat dinner until he's cleansed unless he has bathed his body in water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward, he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. Look how gracious God is, right? That God provides a way to be restored so that you don't starve to death. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Um, uncleanness, we've talked about this multiple times, is not sin. It's not sin to, you know, have your menstruation cycle. That's not sin. It's not sin to have natural bodily fluids. It's not sin that, you know, you, someone in your family dies and you, and you have to take care of the body. Those things aren't issues of sin. They're issues of ritual impurity. So contracting uncleanness is inevitable, and so God graciously adds a process of restoration. And this process is in line with everything that we've explained throughout Leviticus, that you go through the process of purification, of cleansing, and these sorts of things. But 
if the priest disregards the process and eats of the holy meal, look what it says in verse 8. He shall, where I just lost my train of thought. Uh, Verse 9, they shall keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die. And die if they profane it. Now, again, I want to underscore here the reality is that think about how gracious God is because fools should have been dying left and right up in that place, okay? But they weren't. And so even in the law, which we think of the law as, as Paul says, a schoolmaster that points out our sin, even in the midst of the law, when, when God would have been justified to walk around with a ruler smacking people, even in the law, God's primary response is not justice. God's primary response is grace. And if God's primary response in the old covenant and the old way was grace, how much more is God's primary response grace in the new covenant? Which is where we're going to be headed as we continue in the passage. So, if you're unclean and you know that you're unclean, you go through the process of being restored. Easy. If you don't, then you take your life into your own hands. And so what an amazing privilege that we have that we do not live under the old law. Um, you know, Dave, when he was praying, he was talking about how, you know, God, I can't believe that you use us. And that's, honestly, I hope you feel that way. Um, I think we're in a bad place when we start being like, Man, God is so lucky to have me on his team. Like, he should be glad I'm not playing for the other team. You know what I'm saying? When we start thinking that way, I think we're in a bad spot. The truth is that um, none of us deserves to be where we are. We don't deserve to be used the way that we're used. We don't deserve the grace that we've received. That's why it's grace. You don't earn it. You can't work for it. Emma pointed out last week on the way home as she was listening to the sermon, that nobody would be allowed to worship God ever because she then pointed to a scab she had on her leg. And in last week's passage, it said that no one with a scab can enter into the presence of God. You know, and, he, and you think about that out of the mouth of kids, pointing out these realities. It's like, oh, you cut yourself shaving? Sorry, got to stay home today. It's amazing to think what the old law was, right, was like. And Emma was right. The law is a rule, a ruler showing us that we aren't tall enough. And indeed, there are none who are righteous, no, not one. That's the point of the law. And these are just the externals, right? Wait until Jesus comes and he says, I know you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even look upon a woman with lust, you're guilty of committing adultery with her in your heart. I know it's been said, do not, you know, uh, do not murder your neighbor. And I tell you that if you hate your neighbor, you're guilty of murder. If you call someone a fool, you're guilty of, the, you're worthy of the fires of judgment. And so Jesus takes it so much further, underscoring the depth of our own depravity without Christ. You know, for us, we don't have to worry about accidentally being unclean and dying because We did something, you know, unintentionally. What we do need to do, however, is take our sin seriously. We do need to do that. 1 John 1, 5 begins this. This is the message we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice 
the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. Those verses are positional. In other words, that's not about you doing something. That's about something you've received. Walking out God's commands doesn't make you into a follower of God, but it could be evidence of being a follower of God. On the flip side of that, John is saying that if you claim to follow God, yet you walk like the world, act like the world, love the world, and you have no conviction about it, then you have reason to doubt that his, life, his light actually lives within you because his light shines in the corner and points out the cobwebs so that it can be cleaned. If you are born again, you are the light. You are in the light. You are in the light. You have been cleansed by Jesus' blood. But then he continues, verse 8. He says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And the word is not in us. Forgiven, cleansed, yes. But as anybody will tell you, and if you forget, I'm sure your family will point it out, we still sin. We still sin. It's no longer our identity. It's no longer our reality. But we still sin. And if you claim to be without sin, you are lying to yourself. But if we confess our sin, he forgives us and he cleanses us. So in the new covenant, you don't need to worry about being unclean and therefore not being able to eat a holy offering but you do need to keep short accounts with God on your sin. And that's just part of our current reality. In other words, if our born-again status as being cleansed and forgiven is like being married, then we still have to do the parts of the things we need to do to maintain a healthy relationship. When you get in a fight with your spouse, you don't cease to be married all of a sudden. But the point is to have a healthy marriage, you keep short accounts. Then begin, he continues in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation, which is the satisfaction of God's wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, just because God forgives us readily doesn't mean he's casual towards sin. He doesn't want us to sin. But when we do sin, Jesus is on our side as a legal representative, reminding us that our debt has been paid in full. So what am I trying to say? We must be people of integrity, but integrity doesn't mean never sinning. Part of integrity, I think maybe the most important part, <laughs> is actively walking out a lifestyle of repentance. We must be people who regularly practice repentance. What I mean by that, parents, is that you're not going to be the perfect parent. But try to be the chief confessor in your home. Try to be the one who apologizes first. Try to be the one who sets the pace in repentance. Repentance is to turn away from something. And if you're participating in the same habitual sin day after day after day after day, repenting, repeating, repenting, repeating, we have to ask ourselves if we actually are repenting or if we're just sorrowful. Is it worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? 
Let's jump back to Leviticus. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. And if a priest buys a slave's property for money, the slave may eat of it. And anyone born in his house may eat of this food. In other words, his family. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things anymore, right? Because now she lives in another home. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the Lord. Uh, holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. As we said before, priests and their families survived on food from these tabernacle donations. And the priests are to guard the holy food so that people who aren't part of the priest's family are not allowed to eat it. So you can't go over the priest's house and you're from the t- tribe of Benjamin and then just be like, you know, that, those... Matzahs look snazzy and grab one, right? You can't do that. It's not your matzah, all right? And so the, you have to, the priest had to protect the food. Who was allowed to eat it? No commoner could eat it. He couldn't eat of the holy offerings no matter how much he or she, she pursued God. If you weren't a Levite, if you weren't part of the Levite's family, you couldn't eat these meals. To do so meant death, and to do so unintentionally meant fines. And the the author here underscores this by saying, why is this so crucial? Because I, the Lord, am the one who sanctifies them. Um, In the podcast this week, we're going to comment on Matthew 12 and how David eats the showbread and and how he's a layman. And we'll talk about that a little bit. For the sake of time, we're going to skip that. Okay, so what what does this mean for us, right? I know that this, this section of scripture is a little bit harder to bring it to reality for us. Um, well, this isn't going to make it any easier. Hebrews 13, if you make a note of that, Hebrews 13, 9 to 13, is an extreme, extremely obscure text. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Here's the key verse. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. That little verse is referring to this section of scripture. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. The priests would go through the sacrificial process, and some of the meat they would take, and then the rest of it they would burn outside the camp. You couldn't eat that. In Hebrews, in this this book, it seems like there's some kind of situation relating to false teachings about Jews and their food rituals. We don't know what the false teaching was, Um, but some kind of false teaching. But the author of Hebrews says, don't have superstitions about food because food doesn't actually strengthen your soul. Instead, now, we feast on grace. Instead. Verse 10 is where I want you to focus. 
Previously, the priests had access to the food of the altar. Everything else was burned outside the camp. Now we go outside the camp with Christ, and we have access to a food that those old covenant priests have no access to. A better food, a greater food, we eat from a different altar. The Christian altar is different from the food of the tabernacle. The Christian altar is essentially the cross of Christ, is Jesus' sacrifice where he was crucified outside of the camp, as referenced in verses 11 to 13. And so what's the point? The point is that unlike in these Levitical days, we are now invited to the Lord's table to eat freely of his food and drink freely of his living water. Not because you're clean or not because you went through ritual purifying practices and rites, but because he draws you to himself outside of the camp. Previously, we could not approach him at all, but now we dine with our king by feasting on his grace. And so I'm going to kind of re- summarize here these points. The whole point of this section for us, the priests had to be clean, right? They had to be clean because if they weren't clean, then they couldn't participate in worship. For us, our clean nature of our soul comes from the grace of Jesus Christ poured out. He's cleansed our souls. That's why we can come to him at all to participate in this feasting of grace. Now, like the priests of old, we are called to be people of integrity, people who walk out the grace that we've been given. But integrity doesn't mean never sinning. It doesn't mean um, any of that. What it does mean is making progress in your fight against sin. As, and we see in the book of Leviticus, as well as in the book of 1 John and throughout the New Testament, that there is a process for restoration when we do sin. That it's no longer about that initial cleansing. Like Jesus says in John 13, if you've had a bath, you just need to wash your feet. And so we also are called to be a people who regularly practice repentance. We're called to be a people who receive the grace of Christ. We're called to be people who walk in integrity. And when we fail, we actively walk out, practice repentance. But more important than all of that is that weird verse in Hebrews in the end of Leviticus 22, that's that third section, is the only reason that we can come and dine with Christ or with God is because of Christ. That's, that's the most important thing, that Jesus entered into the most holy place as the perfect high priest. Jesus sacrificed himself, poured out his blood upon the place of atonement. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, having completed his work. And Jesus, by his blood, has made us pure and spotless and righteous in his eyes. That Jesus returns to the Father so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, can be sent and dwell within us, that the glory will fill us. And because of this, nothing can make us unclean and have us be refused from the table of grace ever. Because now we are made clean in the eyes of God and we are actively invited to his table, his table of grace. We are invited to feast on his grace. 
It's fitting then that the Lord gave the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, as this regular remembrance that the church of God would be called to do, where they would essentially remember the gospel, remember his broken body, remember his poured out blood for this new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins, and they could feast on his grace. And it's fitting then in 1 Corinthians that Paul says, when you partake of this meal of the Lord's Supper, you do this in an appropriate manner because this is why some of you are sick and dying. And so we see how all of these things go full circle from the old covenant to the new covenant and refer forward and refer back. The point is pursue integrity and pursue repentance. But remember that at the end of the day, the only reason we can eat from the table of grace is because of his grace. And so the grace becomes the driving force behind everything that pushes us forward into sanctifying maturity, that, that comforts us in our failings, that cleanses us in our willful disobedience, and so on and so forth. I think what I want you guys to realize as we go through Leviticus is two main things, because we're almost done. We're going to be getting into the feasts pretty soon where we're going to unpack the meaning of those feasts and then we're going to be winding down. And what I want you guys to understand is this. We are called to be a holy people. We're not called to be like the culture. We're called to be very different from the culture. But that difference isn't something that you do where you try really hard. That difference comes from having received his grace and being transformed by his grace. And then God, in his grace, he points out areas of weakness in your life so that you can bring them back to the cross and repent of them. And chances are, you were doing them for decades, unless you're three, and you just weren't convicted about it before because God, in his grace, doesn't convict you about everything all at once or you'd melt, okay? And so graciously, he convicts us like working on a piece of marble with a chisel and slowly chipping us, chipping away to make us more like Christ. And so when those times of conviction come, don't run from them. It's better to embrace them. It's better to confess your sin to a trusted companion, like it says in James, so that you can be cleansed from your sin, that you can walk forward and become more like Christ. And so Yes, walk in integrity. Yes, walk in repentance. But remember, it all comes back to his grace so that no man can boast. If you have any questions about any of these sections, remember to let us know so we can address them in the weekly podcast. Okay, you can either let me know before you leave or you can text us or email us. But let me pray for you guys. Father God, you are gracious to us. You have provided a way for righteousness that is apart from perfection according to the law, which if there's anything Leviticus has taught me, it's just how far more impossible it was to obey the law than I had previously imagined. And just think about being a pastor and how in the old covenant, I mean, what right, I wouldn't even have the right to do any of this. Lord, that we constantly would have to be worried about if we did something wrong or we touched the wrong thing. And I thank you that we don't need to live in that kind of fear, that your perfect love has driven out fear. 
it is so liberating to know that our forgiveness is not based upon whether or not we do enough. That it's not about us performing before you and hoping to get a attaboy. And that we don't need to pretend. We don't need to, you know, walk around with a fake smile and a plastic haircut among one another as the church, pretending like we all have our life worked out when we all know that we are just desperate for your grace. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that you will complete the work you started. We thank you that now we have an altar that we can feast at, which even the high priest of old would have no right to eat at if he were not born again by your spirit. Lord, the new covenant is greater than the old covenant in every way. We thank you that you will come back to gather your people, that you will come back to right every wrong, to bring justice to this earth, and that one day we will actually be that perfect being which we desire to be now but do not experience in practice. God, I pray that if there are any things going on in our life that you need to point out and convict us of, I pray that you do that. I pray that you would graciously point out the things that we need to come to you, like it says in 1 John, and ask for forgiveness, and the advocate, Jesus, can remind us that that debt's already been paid. So, Lord, cleanse our conscience. Lord, cleanse us of our shame. Cleanse us of our disgrace. And let us walk forward in joy, knowing now we eat at this great altar and we feast on your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.